1: Good morning, it's 8.30 on Thursday, October 15th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, surrogates for the two medical marijuana initiatives take center stage in a televised debate. Then the Supreme Court decides to halt the 2020 census. Plus, in today's book club, an NPR podcast producer tackles what's behind claims of legacy and heritage in defending monuments of the Confederacy. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippians will be deciding whether medical marijuana should be legal in the state when they head to the polls next month. Last night, MPB News hosted a live televised debate to examine the two ballot initiatives, 65 and 65A. Voters will have the opportunity to choose from. Here is Angie Calhoun representing Medical Marijuana 2020 and Jim Perry of the State Board of Health with Wilson Stribling moderating
0: initiative 65 of course was brought on by Joel Baumgar our legislator and it was you know to help sick patients and you know my son Austin I've given my testimony and um, you know s- seven years ago he was diagnosed with Lyme disease and which has created a ton of issues like chronic nausea and vomiting and severe joint pain and you um, and and seizures as well, and we tried the 20, we saw 20 doctors, we tried 17 prescriptions for over 18 months, and they were not working. So therefore, you know, we did research, and we found and and knew that medical marijuana helped patients with nausea and vomiting and seizures and pain. So um, Austin, at the age of 19, decided that it would be best for him to to go to a state with a legal and regulated and functioning program, and um, and so he did, and um, I stayed with him until he was well enough. The medical marijuana worked wonders for him; it suppressed the seizures. He was able to eat once again. The um, the pain subsided. Um, so you know, even today, though, if he were to not not to be able to use medical marijuana, those those symptoms do return and um, and so we're just this this program initiative 65 is uh, a great framework for the amendment it's you know based upon pharmacy uh, layouts and uh, and and i i just know that you know the opposition talks about you know too much wording and this and that but i have to say 65a for me as a parent is not a working program whatsoever
2: We'll get into more of the details of 65A in a moment. But, Jim, we've heard stories like Angie's before of, of people uh, who have these conditions that are helped uh, when they go other places for medical marijuana. Given those stories and stories like uh, like Angie's, uh, are you still against uh, medical marijuana in Mississippi? It's great to have this conversation because it's a complex issue. This is a, actually a six- or seven-page amendment that's going to go in the state constitution. The number of pages depends on how, long, how large the font is. But if the issue is about helping uh, Angie and her son, of course, everybody's for that. Uh, But that's not what's going into the Constitution. It's not gonna say, do we wanna help people like Angie and her son? It's gonna say, do you wanna give special protections to a $14 billion a year industry? That protections that no other product or medicine come close to having. And and that's what this is about. The out-of-state marijuana industry, they are rebranding marijuana with stories like this, but it ignores the real risks that are inherent in it. And if it was about helping just Angie's son, of course people are for that. But why do we have to, along the way, give immunity to immunity to the marijuana companies where nobody associated with them can be liable for any criminal or civil activity? Why are we not taxing it? Why are we not giving the same opt-out to local communities like states like California give? Why are we uh, giving them these, this ability to operate with uh, impunity across the state It's because this is about money to them, because they're marketing to kids, and they want to create this addiction-for-profit enterprise like we've seen in other states. If it's medicine, we want to treat it like medicine, and that's the Board of Health's position. So would a Board of Health support medical marijuana if it were not in the form of a constitutional amendment? Well, certainly being in the Constitution makes it a lot harder, because with any law, with any new program, especially something as complex as marijuana, The legislature makes regular changes to protect patients, to protect our citizens. But if it's in the Constitution, any substantive change will, it's going to require another vote of the people. We would like for the federal laws to be changed so we can do more research on marijuana. That's real medicine. That's on the way to creating a real medical marijuana program, which we would absolutely support. But what Initiative 65 does is enshrine in the state constitution very special protections to this industry that i'm sure the tobacco industry wishes they'd had back in the 50s and 60s when they were telling us that you know smoke more camels because it's good for your throat irritation that's not the right way
1: to hear or see more from last night's program visit mpbonline.org or download the at issue podcast on your favorite podcast platform coming up the supreme court decides to halt the 2020 census this is mississippi edition on mpb think radio This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippians have until tonight to complete the 2020 census. The U.S. Supreme Court allowed the Trump administration to end the the count early after a lower court had extended the deadline. Mississippi's census response rate is 60 percent. Kayla Kane with the Southern Poverty Law Center tells our Desiree Frazier the decision was a shock.
4: The census has been going back and forth all summer in terms of deadlines. And considering that it was such a big operation, um, I did not think that the SCOTUS would reverse the lower court's decision.
5: What do you think led to that? Oh,
4: I wish I knew. Um, I'm not quite sure. I know that I'm sure that the, the counts being being ready by December probably has something to do with that. Although the Census Bureau has repeatedly stated, even um, as the beginning of COVID, that the December 31 date wasn't going to be plausible anyways. Um, so I, I, I'm I think that probably has something to do with it. But it's a little bit worrisome considering that the Census Bureau has continuously stated that that wasn't viable to begin with.
5: Well, what does it mean for states like Mississippi, um, Mississippi being a very poor rural state that relies on a lot of federal funds?
4: It means a lot of, funding that won't be there for um, education, for health care, for roads, for uh, even poor folks. We're talking rural folks, right? Because we know that rural folks have um, a hard time getting counted as well. So there's a various populations that are going to get hit, not e- just with financial funds. And then we talk about the political power that the state of Mississippi is losing by not being completely counted as well.
5: Now, I was looking on the Mississippi Census 2020 website, and they have the response rates, and Mississippi's national, well, the national rate is 66.8. They list Mississippi at 60.2% in terms of response rate.
4: That's correct, and it's even lower than it was in 2010. Believe it or not, I pulled 2010. Um, the state of Mississippi was at 69, percent. Um, and what that—that's the self-response rate. So that means that um, about 60% of households have completed their questionnaire, either by phone, by mail, or online at 2020census.gov. Um, and so, the state of Mississippi is almost about 10% lower than um, we were seeing in 2010.
5: There is the allegation um, by civil rights groups that some of this is being done to undercount undocumented immigrants, people of color in the census.
4: Yeah, and the reason that, you know, that narrative came about is because, um, After uh, President Trump and his administration put out the document that they um, intentionally did not want the states to count um, undocumented folks in their apportionment, which we know is illegal and that um, cannot happen, um, it seemed to be that the speeding up of the census kind of became that back burner um, policy that they could do. So they couldn't get us on um, the policy that they wanted, and so they kind of went um, towards the timing of the census.
5: Would you say that that is what is happening?
4: You know, I try to give most folks the benefit of the doubt, but until we have more data to see how fast they've they, To see how fast they sped up the proxy method, it's kind of hard to tell because all we see is numbers. And there's a lot of stories behind the numbers that we're still trying to flesh out.
5: All right. Well, Kayla Kane, we appreciate your time and speaking with us about this issue, Southern Poverty Law Center. Thank
4: you. Awesome. Thank you so much.
1: The census deadline is midnight tonight. Coming up in today's book club, an NPR podcast producer tackles what's behind claims of legacy and heritage in defending monuments of the Confederacy. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. If you ever miss one of our locally produced shows or want to simply hear it again, you can find what you need at mpbonline.org or download our podcast app to your smartphone. MPB programming is on your schedule at MPBOnline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The Southern Poverty Law Center estimates there are more than 1,700 public symbols of the Confederacy still in place in the U.S. Connor Town O'Neill produces the NPR podcast and Pulitzer Prize finalist White Lies. In his book Down Along With That Devil's Bones, O'Neill examines the relationship between Confederate symbols and white supremacy. He lays the groundwork with Confederate General Nathan Bedford Forrest.
3: He was a slave trader before the war, and he became quite a wealthy man. He financed his own cavalry troop uh, when the war broke out. He's an accused war criminal because of the Fort Pillow massacre. Uh, that happened in 1864 when when his men gunned down almost 200 surrendering Black soldiers. After the war, he served as the first Grand Wizard of the Klan. He also operated a convict leasing plantation on President's Island just outside of Memphis so in so many different ways his actions in his life and, and his legacy are, are bound up in this our uh, racial hierarchy and the, and the violence and exploitation that, that powers that hierarchy his defenders would say that you know he was a, a skilled tactician and really marvel at his military acumen and because he enlisted as a private you know he wasn't like Robert E Lee. He didn't go to West Point. He's very much, you can sort of see him in contrast to that sort of Southern gentleman, that sort of aristocracy that, that Lee represents. So he, he has a sort of blue collar appeal in that way too, a sort of natural instinctual person, this sort of disdained book learning. So people who are swearing that the South will rise again and are constantly wanting to refight or almost Monday morning quarterback the Civil War. I really looked to Forrest as a kind of low star for that. What could have been, you know, if only Forrest had been honored or you know, celebrated properly in his time, then the South would have won. So it's a complicated legacy. It's a it's a polarized legacy. For me, and I think it all comes down to questions of how will white supremacy be, be perpetuated in this country.
1: Forrest County, Mississippi is named for General Forrest and there was some controversy over a monument that sits publicly. A lot of debate during the summer, and it's going to a referendum on the November ballot. So people in Forest County will vote on that in just a couple of weeks. You often hear people who will want to preserve monuments and statues that it's a matter of legacy, that it's a matter of heritage. What does that mean?
3: I think some white Southerners have a a real chip on their shoulder about sort of being being looked down upon. And so I think there's a turn to, to quote-unquote, heritage, as it were, to be proud of who you are and and where you came from. But I think that's really a sort of bad faith argument because in no uncertain terms, the leaders of the Confederacy, the documents of secession of almost all of the states made it abundantly clear and in no uncertain terms that they were seceding to perpetuate slavery and to expand it further west into the frontier. And they were doing so because they believe that black Americans were inherently inferior and that sort of slavery was their natural state stamped by their creator, as Jefferson Davis put it. I don't think there's any way to claim that it's sort of heritage and not hate. It's too bad because there is so much Southern heritage that could be celebrated. I mean, think about John Lewis who passed away this summer. Why isn't that the heritage that people uh, claim? Uh, so much art, food, music, amazing literature, leaders, preachers, People that wrote, sang with amazing moral clarity and artistic vision about what the South could be. I mean, why? That's, that's not the heritage that they're talking about when they cite heritage. Are you saying? Um, so that, I
1: think sort of, let me interrupt. Are you saying that anyone who would support a statue or monument remaining and claiming it's because of heritage is a white supremacist?
3: I'm saying that the heritage that they are pointing to is about upholding white supremacy. I'm not particularly interested in looking into the hearts and minds of any one person and trying to evaluate whether any individual is or isn't racist or is or isn't a white supremacist. I don't, I don't know how productive that is, but we can look at the systems that they are claiming to support or uphold, past or present, and we can say in no uncertain terms that the Confederacy was a project of white supremacy. And so to claim that as your heritage is to claim a heritage of white supremacy.
1: Connor Town O'Neill is the author of Down Along With That Devil's Bone, A Reckoning With Monuments, Memory, and the Legacy of White Supremacy. Thank you so much for being with us, Connor. Thanks, Karen. I really enjoyed it. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it.